for our lesson. Go to Genesis chapter number 3 for starters. Genesis chapter number 3. Lord willing, today we finish the first section of our doctrinal statement. It is our statement of belief regarding the Word of God. And it's this, it's in your bulletin there, we, we believe in the absolute authority of the Holy Scriptures. I misspoke, we got one more week, we got to deal with that sentence. We believe in the absolute authority of the Holy Scriptures, we believe the original manuscripts were given by inspiration of God, and were without error, we believe the God who gave His word to man has taken upon Himself the responsibility for its preservation. We believe the incorruptible word of God, which cannot pass away, is available, is available today, right now, to the English-speaking world, the authorized King James Version, this Bible is our final authority in all matters. And we've taken several weeks. We've talked about inspiration. We've talked about uh, preservation. We've talked about the King James Bible itself. And this morning, we're going to, we're going to contrast the King James Bible with all the other Bibles set against it. We're going to take the modern versions and compare what the modern versions say to what the King James Bible says because the easiest way to show the superiority of the King James Bible is to put the two side by side and examine what they say and and, and, and note the differences and we could do so uh, for weeks on end. We're just going to give a brief overview and a summary this morning but what it will demonstrate Number one, these books, these modern English Bibles, they cannot be the inspired and inerrant word of God because they have mistakes and because of the things that are removed or diluted or changed. And then I I just want to demonstrate that this is a big deal. It is a problem. It does matter which Bible you use. So with those things in mind, Genesis chapter 3, get out your outline on the back of your bulletin that will help you follow Along Genesis chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6, the Bible says, Now the serpent, we know who that is, it's the devil, that's Satan. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Okay, the first thing the devil did was cast doubt on the word of God. Did God really say that? Is that really what he meant? Are you sure you have it right? Can you can you really have confidence in the word of God? The first thing out of the devil's mouth is to question God's word. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the trees in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And verse 4, the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Now look back at chapter 2 and verse number 17 into the verse. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The devil has moved from casting doubt on God's word, number one, to flat out denying God's word, number two. In verse 4, his statement is diametrically opposed to God's statement, God said, ye shall surely die. The devil said, ye shall not surely die. The devil called God a liar. Verse number five, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, 
knowing good and evil. So what three things did the devil do in the Garden of Eden? He cast doubt on the word of God in verse 1. He denied the word of God in verse 4. And then he deified mankind in verse number 5. You need help with the spelling. It's D-E-I-F-I-E-D. He deified mankind. Is that one of those words that's the same whether you spell it forward or backward? I think that it is. He deified, what is that called? Palindrome. Man, that is cool. A palindrome. He deified mankind. He said, ye shall be as gods. Now, what three things did the woman do in Genesis chapter 3? Because this is instructive as well. Look back at verse number 3. She answered the serpent, which is kind of a weird thing. What's she doing talking to the devil there in the garden of Eden? But in verse number 3, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Is that actually what God said? Look back at chapter 2 and verse number 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, evil is close. But there are three things that the woman did. First of all, she took away from God's word. She took away from God's word. In verse number 3 of chapter 3, God has said, uh, You shall not eat of it. Uh, I'm sorry, verse number 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Well, what God had actually said in chapter 2, verse 16, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. She took out the freely. She restricted what God had said. God had said, you can freely eat. She left out the freely part. So she took away from the word of God. Not only did she take away from God's word, she added to God's word. In verse number 3 of chapter 3, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it. That phrase is not in God's words in chapter 2. God never said they couldn't touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or its fruit. Now, it probably wasn't a good idea to touch it. That just means you're close enough to go ahead and stick it in your mouth. But, but God never said that. She added to what God had said. She took away from it. She added to it. And she also, at number three, she changed it. She changed it. God had said in chapter 2, verse number 17, Thou shalt surely die. The woman said in chapter 3, verse 3, Lest ye die. So we've got the serpent in Genesis 3. He questions the word of God. He flat out denies the word of God. We've got Eve. She takes away from it. She adds to it. And she changes it. You put all that together. And you understand in Genesis chapter 3, this set in order a sequence of events that culminated in the fall of mankind into sin. It was a big deal how the devil and the woman both approached the word of God, it led to the world being cursed by sin. Okay? So adding to God's word, changing God's word, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It comes from the devil. And it leads to sin. 
And Scripture strictly forbids both. We covered the verses last time, Revelation 22, 18 and 19. Don't add to God's word. Don't take away from God's word. Proverbs uh, 30, verse number 6. Add thou not to his words, lest he reprove thee, thou be found a liar. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. Don't add to it. Don't diminish from it. God's very serious about his word. Now, what we're going to do this morning is move through some references. You're going to look them up. In the King James Bible, I am going to read them to you from a modern Bible version. I have picked four of the most popular modern English translations, and we're going to note that they say different things, and, and the differences, they really are important. So write down what's different for each of these references. Write down why it's a problem. Here are the top ten best-selling English Bible translations, actually the top nine, because I've got a Spanish uh, version in here as well, just from an article on the Christian Post. Number one, top selling uh, English Bible. Anybody want to guess? NIV. NIV is the number one top selling still, the New International Version. Number two is the King James. You, you wouldn't necessarily think that to hear people talk, but the number two top selling Bible translation is the King James Version. Number three is the New Living translation, an update of the Living Bible. Number four, I thought this one would be higher on the list, is the English Standard Version, the ESV. Number five is the New King James. Number six, the Christian Standard Bible update, the Holman Christian Standard. Number seven is the Reign of Valera, that's Spanish translation. Number eight, the New International Reader's Version, that's just a different update of the NIV. Number nine is the Message. I can't believe the Message makes the list. Number 10 is the New American Standard Bible. So I'm, I'm going to give you uh, these verses from the NIV, from the ESV, really uh, some examples, some illustrations from all of them. You're in Luke chapter 4 and verse number 4. And as I read this to you from another Bible, just pay attention to what the Word of God says. I'm going to read it, I'm going to read it to you from the NIV. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Period. End of the verse. You see a problem? You see anything that's missing? Jesus' statement goes on to say, but by every word of God. In the Matthew passage, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Christ's words emphasize the importance of every word. Now, a Bible that contains 64,000 fewer words, you can understand why it would want to remove the reference to the importance of every word. Okay? Now, what did we learn last time from Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower? When the seed is sown, the birds of the air come and, and, and take away the seed. What was that a picture of? That was a picture of the devil. Who is responsible for removing the word of God? That's it's the devil. So if I open a Bible to Luke chapter 4, verse 4, and it doesn't say, but by, uh, but by every word of God, why am I being led to believe that every word is not important? Hey, Luke chapter 2, we, we do have to move quickly. Luke chapter 2, just a couple pages back, and in verse number 33, you're in the King James Bible. I'm going to read it to you from an ESV, the English Standard Version. And his father and his mother marveled, at what was said about him. So, somebody help me out. What's different there, Brian? What did you notice? It's not father, it's actually Joseph. All right, the Bible says Joseph and his mother 
marveled. Now, what's the big deal there? Um, Joseph was not Jesus' father. Jesus Christ was virgin born, the only baby in the history of the world that came into the world uh, without a human father, the Holy Ghost. Uh, the Bible says, put that holy thing into Mary's womb. Jesus was not conceived by a man. Joseph was entrusted with raising uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Joseph was an honorable man, a good man, but he wasn't Jesus' daddy. <laughs> it's not his father and his mother, Joseph and his mother. So changing Joseph to father, it it at the very least dilutes and takes away from the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, which is absolutely essential to our salvation. If Jesus is not virgin born, then he's not God in a human body. He's a sinner like the rest of us. He can't die on the cross for our sins. He'd have to die for his own. If, if, if we take away from the virgin birth, we're taken away from salvation. In a similar strain, come to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16. This is a trend with the modern Bibles. They are much weaker. They take away from the deity of Jesus Christ. That's his divine nature. The fact that he was, he was in a human body, but he was God in a human body. 100% man, but also 100% God. 1 Timothy 3.16, there in your Bible says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The seminal statement on the deity of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you from a Christian standard Bible. And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh. Well, who was manifested in the flesh? It's not a great mystery that somebody came in the flesh. Everybody's here in the flesh. But it's a great mystery that God would come in the flesh. The verse in many of the modern Bibles does not even make grammatical sense. The word he is a pronoun. A pronoun is a word that, that takes the place of another noun. When you have a pronoun, you have to have an antecedent. Very good. You guys paid attention. All right. So when we have the pronoun he in 1 Timothy 3.16, if we have the pronoun he, we would have to have an antecedent to go back to, there is no way to connect it in the passage to a proper antecedent if you don't have God in 1 Timothy 3.16. He was manifest the flesh, says nothing. You've got to identify who it was that was manifest in the flesh. In the New International Reader's Version, it says this, there is no doubt that godliness is a great mystery. Jesus appeared in a body. Okay, Nobody's denying that Jesus appeared in the body, but the great mystery is that that was God, the Word, who is in the beginning and created all things. That Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now, we don't have time to run the references, but in the book of 1 John and the book of 2 John, denial of the deity of Jesus Christ is called Antichrist. I wouldn't want to have a Bible that denies or takes away from the deity of Jesus Christ because that is an anti-Christian thing to do. A similar mistake, Isaiah 14. Go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 14 
and verse number 12. This chapter is about the fall of Lucifer. Class, who is Lucifer? The devil. You guys are straight A students. I love it. Isaiah 14 is about the fall of Lucifer. And in the Bible, Isaiah 14 and verse number 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Okay, let me read it to you from an NIV. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star. It's different. ESV. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star. Now, 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 what's the name given to Lucifer in Isaiah 14, 12? Son of the morning. King James Bible. New National Version, morning star, ESV, day star. I had to include this one just for entertainment value. Message Bible. What a come down this, O Babylon, day star. Okay. Now, here's why that's a problem. And, and you can just jot down the cross-references. Uh, we do have to move quickly this morning. Daystar? That is a name attributed to Jesus Christ in 2 Peter 1.19. Lucifer is not the daystar. Jesus is the daystar. If you have a Bible that inserts daystar in Isaiah 14.12, you have a Bible that is equating Jesus with Lucifer. You're calling Jesus the devil. Does anybody here think that's a problem? I think that's a problem. Morning star. Well, Revelation twenty two sixteen. Jesus Christ is the bright and morning star. If you have a Bible that says morning star in Isaiah 14, 12, that Bible is calling Jesus Christ the devil. Now, it seems to me it is a really basic fundamental issue to be able to tell the difference between Jesus and Lucifer. But the modern English Bibles fail in that. They, they can't distinguish between the two in Isaiah 14 and verse number 12. So, so far, here's what we've seen. An attack on the, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, an attack on the deity of Jesus Christ, an attack on the very identity of Jesus Christ. Let me show you an attack on the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Jesus was sinless, was he not? Jesus was perfect and holy and harmless and undefiled. He did no sin. He had no sin. He knew no sin. Uh, we, we know all those things from the Bible. Look at Matthew 5 and verse 22. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 22. You see what the Bible says, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. New Living Translation. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. What's missing? Without a cause. Thank you, Emma. I, I meant for that question to be asked out loud. Without a cause. For no reason. New American Standard. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And that one little phrase, without a cause, that makes a big difference. Here's why. In Mark chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus got angry. In fact, he got angry on more than one occasion. You remember him overturning the tables of the money changers? You know why he did that? He was angry. 
often the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were leading people astray. They were, they were making statements that were angry. Jesus got angry with them. Well, according to the New American Standard, he's guilty before the court. Yes? Mark 3, verse 5, one example. Um, according to New Living Translation, he's subject to judgment. But he's not, because he had a just and righteous cause. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be ye angry, and sin not. It, it, not only is it possible to be angry without sinning, we are commanded in some instances to be angry without sinning so removing without a cause it doesn't just condemn us it condemns the very son of god now come to first john chapter five. First john chapter five this is the statement in the bible on the trinity if you if you haven't memorized this verse it'd be a great verse to memorize you need to know where this is in the bible to show that god is three in one a tri unity a trinity and what happens in 1 John chapter 5 is very deceptive. Very deceptive. In, in 1 John chapter 5, actually beginning verse 6, read through verse 8. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth. The Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. You see the verse divisions there. Verse number seven, three that bear record in heaven. Verse number eight, three that bear witness in earth. Now, in the NIV, in the ESV, in the CSB, in the NASB, in the NLT, all of these Bibles, they remove verse seven but they want to make it look like they didn't remove verse 7, so they take the first half of verse 8 and they put a 7 in front of it. And then they move the verse 8 to the middle of the verse where it lists the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Verse 7 in the NIV, there are three that testify. Verse 7, the New Living Translation, so we have these three witnesses. The, the message was at least honest enough just to remove it completely and go from 6 to 8. They took out verse 7, but they don't want you to know they took out the Trinity from the Bible. So they split verse 8 in two, stick a 7 in front of half of verse 8, and an 8 in front of the last half of verse 8. Not only is it wrong, but it's deceptively wrong. Okay, come to Acts chapter 8. I'll show you a different instance. Acts chapter 8 is a very important passage of Scripture for demonstrating how baptism is separate from salvation. You don't get saved by being baptized. You get baptized because you've been saved. And that's the, the biblical order in every, every, in, in every case and perhaps nowhere more clear then in Acts chapter 8, where the angel of the Lord speaks to Philip in verse 26, go down to the desert, and in verse 27, he uh, meets this Ethiopian man who in verse 28 is reading Isaiah, sitting in his chariot. Philip goes and joins himself to him, verse 29, asks him if he understands what he's reading, verse 30. The man doesn't, verse 31. He's reading Isaiah 53 in verses 32 and 33. And he says, I have no idea what I'm reading. Verse 34, Philip preached Jesus to him. 
in verse 35 and in verse 36, and as they went on their way, they came into a certain water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So the man hears Philip preach the gospel. Philip explains who Jesus is and what Jesus did and how the man can have his sins forgiven. And the man drives by, sees water. Okay, then I'll get baptized. Philip said, wait a second. First, you've got to believe on Jesus Christ. And the man confesses with his mouth the Lord Jesus and believes in his heart on the Son of God. And he makes this profession of faith in verse 37. And then in verse 38, he gets baptized. Now, everywhere in the book of Acts, it's the same order. Somebody hears the gospel, they believe the gospel, and then they get baptized. In the New International Version, in the ESV, in the New International Reader's Version, in the message, it skips from verse 36 to verse 38 without a verse 37. The verse is gone. The number of the verse is gone. It's completely removed from the text. Now, if you read the passage in those Bibles, the man hears the gospel and says, well, what does send me to get baptized? And then he gets baptized. Getting baptized is the response to hearing the gospel. If you take out verse 37, um, the New Living Translation was at least honest enough to put a verse 37 there and then no, no words, just the number. In the Christian Standard Bible, the New American Standard Bible, the verse is there, but it's in brackets indicating it's not supposed to be there. That's a problem. That could lead to someone thinking that getting baptized is the way to be saved when everything else in the Bible says something different. If they're reading this passage in a modern English version, well, just use whatever Bible you want. It's really not a big deal. To me, that's a big deal. Somebody's eternal soul, somebody's eternal salvation, heaven or hell, to me, that's a big deal. I think it matters what Bible... You read, come to 1 Corinthians one twenty one, another verse affecting salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Oh, verse 18 and verse 21. <clears throat> For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but in us which are saved is the power of God. What is foolish, according to verse 18? Thank you, that was not rhetorical. The preaching of the cross. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Verse number 21, after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Let me ask you, what's foolish, the cross or the preaching? The preaching. The Bible never said the cross is foolish. The preaching of the cross is foolish. NIV, 1 Corinthians 1. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached. ESV, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. New King James, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached. 
CSB, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message. In ARV, it pleased God to use the foolish things we preach. New American Standard, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message. Is, am I the only one that it's clear to in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 1 that the foolishness is not, it's not the cross, it's the preaching of the cross? But in, but in every modern English Bible, what's attributed as foolish is the cross itself, the message itself, the, the truth that God became a man and died for sinners. That, they say that is foolish. What does the Bible say about that? The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. You think the message is foolish? That probably means you're lost. It, to, to me, that makes a difference. I think that's a big deal. James chapter 5, verse 16. James chapter 5 and verse number 16. These are just some of the differences. James chapter 5 and verse 16. Confess your... Next word. You're not there yet. Sorry. I'll give you... Two more seconds. Confess your, you heard everybody say it? Faults. Confess your faults one to another. You know what the other Bible say? Confess your sins. Uh, in the New King James, confess your tran- tr- trespasses. Your trespasses. I'm hesitant to confess my faults. I am not going to confess my sins to you. I don't want you to confess your sins to me. Here's why. Because I can't forgive your sins. Because you can't forgive my sins. Who can forgive sins but God only? Mark chapter 2, verse number 7. You know what other people will do? They will hold that against you. You know what God will never do? He'll never hold it against you. God can handle you bringing your sins to him other people, you just need to let them know your fault, that you have propensities, that you have struggles, that you have issues, but you do not need to confess specific sins to other people. Now, come on, you know the Roman Catholic religion is built upon the confessional, where a priest that you can't see sits in a booth and listens to you tell him all the horrible things you've ever done so we can blackmail you the rest of your life kind of keep you in bondage to that religion. You leave the church. Now I'm going to let everybody know all those horrible things that you did. Don't confess your sins to a man. But that's what a modern English Bible would encourage you to do. The King James Bible, very clear, confess your faults. Now let me just show you some, some mistakes and some errors. we got five minutes left. I think we can do it. Mark chapter 1. I mentioned this last week, I believe. I'll show it to you this week. Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the winters, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Here's what you have. In, in Mark 1, 2, it's written in the prophets. You know why it says it's written in the prophets? Because in verse 2, you have a quotation from Malachi. And in verse 3, you have a quotation from Isaiah. And Malachi and Isaiah are prophets. And there's more than 
one of them. So instead of saying, as it is written in Malachi and Isaiah, it just says, as it is written in the prophets. So the King James Bible says. NIV, NLT, ESV, CSB, and IRV, Message, New American Standard, they all say, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. But here's the problem. Verse 2 doesn't come from Isaiah. Verse 2 comes from Malachi. If, 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 the, if the translation says in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah, then it's wrong. It's incorrect. What do we learn about the Word of God? The words of the Lord are pure words. The Word of the Lord is right. God doesn't make any mistakes when He speaks. Gets tainted, gets corrupted, gets messed with by a man. Men don't make mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes. God preserved His words. He used imperfect men to do it. God gave us it perfectly by saying the prophets, if the modern English Bible says it's written in Isaiah, that's, that's an error. 2 Samuel chapter 21 2 Samuel chapter number 21, I could go into the nursery class this morning and everybody would get this question right, who killed Goliath? David killed Goliath. Thank you for that overwhelming response. David killed Goliath. Everybody knows that. 2 Samuel 21 verse 19 2 Samuel 21 19, and there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jeorajim, you like how I did that? Jeorajim, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So here's this guy, Elhanan, and he slays, he kills Goliath's brother. You see, the brother of is in italics. We talked about last time. Uh, there had to be words added in the English translation to say the same thing as, in this case, the Hebrew. Well, there are many modern Bibles that take out the brother of and say that Elhanan slew Goliath. When in 1 Samuel 17, there's a whole chapter about how David killed Goliath. Now, some of them, some of them have fixed this problem in the modern updates but the modern Bibles are 50% on whether or not they get this question right. Who, who killed Goliath? I, I'll go in Miss Darlene's class this morning. Those kids get 100%. I trust them before I trust modern Bible translators. 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13. I don't want a Bible with mistakes. I want a Bible with all of the words and with all of the words right. And I believe I have that in the King James Bible. 1 Samuel 13. And verse number 1, 1 Samuel 13, and verse number 1. We'll stop here. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel. So we're just kind of being given a timeline here in 1 Samuel 13, 1. Jot down this reference, Acts 13, 21 where the New Testament recounting of the Old Testament history defines the length of Saul's reign. Saul reigned for a total of 40 years. Acts 13, 21, doesn't matter what Bible version you open, all say that Saul reigned 40 years, and that's correct according to the Old Testament. Here's the problem. 
I'm going to read you from the NIV, the NLT, the HCB, the NIRV, the NASB. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Again, these same Bibles in Acts 13.21 say he reigned 40 years. That is an obvious contradiction. That They can't both be right. ESV, Saul was years old when he began to reign. And he reigned... Two years over Israel. <laughs> Saul was years old. It doesn't even have a number. It doesn't say anything. They didn't want to venture a guess and be wrong. The verse the King James Bible doesn't say how old Saul was. It's just given us a timeline of a timeline of his reign. You can get the age from different passages. Message Bible. Saul was a young man when he became his king. He was king over Israel for many years. <laughs> That one's kind of funny. I kind of like that one. Here, here, here's the problem. Do you want a Bible that has mistakes? I don't want a Bible that has mistakes. I want a Bible that knows how long Saul reigned. First Samuel 13, 1 Samuel 13.1, the modern Bibles get it wrong and contradict themselves. Acts 13.21. Now, again, here's what I'm saying. Here, here's how I know the King James Bible is the Word of God. No proven contradiction, errors, or mistakes. I can, I can take any English Bible since 1881. I can show you errors, contradictions, and mistakes. The words of the Lord are pure words. It matters what Bible you read. It could affect something as important as the deity of Christ or the salvation of your soul. And so I, I really do think it's a big deal. It'd be great to be familiar with these things, be able to explain that to somebody when the opportunity arises. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Help us to have confidence that what we hold in our hand is the very word of God. And with that confidence, may we build our lives and stake our eternities upon it. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.